Christchurch, New Malden, 1st of December 2019, 6.30 service. Alex Fry speaking in the series, What They Said About the Coming of Jesus. Gabriel. If we were to play the word association game, I wonder what would come to mind when I mention the word story. The chances are we all have our favourite stories. They might be childhood fairy tales or fables that have stuck with us over the years. They could be family legends we've inherited from our parents or grandparents. Perhaps we quite like to tell some of our own stories of adventure or misadventure, especially when we reminisce with old friends. I'm sure we all have our favourite genre of story as well. Perhaps, perhaps it's action-adventure, romance, comedy, drama, and so on. And there's something about stories that can be quite powerful. The sheer volume of tabloid journalism, for example, suggests that we love a good story, especially if it's got a juicy plot. The purpose of a film, at its most basic level, is to tell a story, and it's a $136 billion industry. And amid the decline and collapse of many of our high street chains, the bookshop Waterstones still seems to be going relatively strong. I suspect all of that is because stories are integral to our lives. Psychologists say that we all weave our life experiences into a coherent story as a way of making sense of them and the world we live in. Good stories can be very compelling. In my experience, the most powerful ones are those that transport us into a realm of unimagined possibility. And this evening, we're presented with a story that, in some respects, is no different. Our passage invites us into the biggest story that this world has ever known, that it will ever know. Like many others, it's a story that helps us to make sense of the world and one that transports us into a realm of unimagined possibility. But unlike some other stories, we're not transported into a world of make-believe and fantasy. We're invited into a real place with real people at a real point in time. Not so long ago, we unpacked the Bible's overarching story of the covenant. We saw that God's involvement in human history is a rich tapestry made up of a series of connecting threads. Each thread contains a story in its own right, but together they tell a bigger story, the grand narrative of God's purpose for humanity, to save us from sin and death by raising us to be with God eternally. And Luke invites us into the very middle of this grand narrative. Luke's purpose for doing so is to help us make sense of the world and our place within it. He starts his gospel in verse three by saying that he wants to write an orderly account or a narrative as the original Greek implies. But the way that Luke does this is a far cry from the way that we would tend to make sense of the world in the UK today. Equally, 
He does so in a way that would have seemed very alien to those living in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Luke's way of making sense of things pushes the boundaries of our imaginations. As we'll see, Luke's way of doing this invites a response, one that encourages us to take our place within the overarching story of God's involvement with humankind, with people like us. However, if we're to understand how Luke helps us to make sense of the world and our place within it, we first need to understand something of his own context. At this point in history, the Jewish people were living within a highly precarious and highly unstable political context. Their king, Herod, was only able to rule so long as the Roman emperor allowed him to do so. This required Herod's commitment to the emperor, who was considered to be a god and so was worshipped. In other words, the Jewish people were not only subject to a blasphemous dictator, but their supposed leader was in cahoots with this self-professed God. This would have been nothing short of disastrous for a people who were called to worship the one true God at the exclusion of all others. Because of this call, God had promised his people their own land, allowing them to worship him in freedom, a far cry from their current circumstances. So far, so bad. But it gets worse. God had apparently remained silent. They had no prophecies, no words of hope, comfort, or promise for over 400 years. Nothing since the prophet Malachi had come, announcing that God would recompense those who do evil and care for those who remained faithful to him. God's people were living in between the promise of salvation and its fulfillment. And it is at this point in the story where Luke begins. He invites us into the very crux of our world's grand narrative, the tipping points after which nothing would ever be the same again. But as Luke unpacks this grand narrative, we're met with three surprises. Firstly, there's the place. Enter Gabriel into this highly precarious and highly unstable environment. Gabriel came with God's message of salvation, but not to Rome, the epicenter of the oppressive regime, and not to Jerusalem, the geographical center of Judaism, but to an obscure, seemingly irrelevant, and rarely documented town called Nazareth. Not exactly the obvious setting for the turning point of the world's greatest ever story. But to Nazareth he came. It would seem that God saw fit for human history to hinge on an event that took place in this small town on the very fringe of the Roman Empire. The second surprise is who? If we didn't know the gospel story, 
I wonder what kind of person we'd imagine God would choose to be instrumental in his bringing of salvation. The chances are, if we're being honest, we probably wouldn't assume that God would choose someone on the margins of society. We tend to think that the people who shape the course of history are those in power, or at least those who go on and take power. Probably people with an excellent education, who are well-connected, who look the part and say the right things, more or less. We probably wouldn't imagine that God would choose someone in their teenage years, or that there's someone from the wrong side of the tracks, especially if that teenager happened to be pregnant and was soon to become a refugee. And yet, this is exactly what God does. Gabriel is sent to Mary. She was probably around the age of 15, not from a wealthy family, and her education as a woman living 2,000 years ago would have been limited. She was born and raised in the sticks, away from the successful city High Flyers. And yet, Gabriel calls her favoured by God. God sees fit to entrust Mary with his son, the one who in time would redeem the entire world. And this second surprise of who leads us to our third surprise, how. With Gabriel comes a name, Jesus. It's Yeshua in the Hebrew, and it means God is salvation. It is this salvation that enables Luke's characters to make sense of their dark and often fragile circumstances. But again, not in the way that God's people had assumed. Gabriel gives us three descriptions of Jesus in our passage. He will be the son of the Most High, the son of God, and he will sit on David's throne, having an eternal kingdom. These are descriptions that were familiar in first century Judaism. They were actually interchangeable the Jewish king was considered to be the son of God, and it was believed that their kingdom would be eternal because the future promised king would overcome all of their enemies once and for all. They would be the one who would finally bring salvation by overcoming the Romans and restoring the land of Israel to God's people. But this is not how the story goes. Luke tells us that Jesus' life was ended by Roman execution. Again, if we weren't familiar with the gospel story, what kind of person would we think God would raise up to defeat those who oppressed his people? What images of rescuers or heroes do we have? We may well think of a wide range of quite distinct people, from Winston Churchill to Robert the Bruce, from Gandhi to Martin Luther King. But in all of these cases, it would be fair to say that we'd expect these saviours to concretely 
and unambiguously defeat the oppressors, or at least give it a go. Yet, Jesus didn't do this in his 33 years on earth. I suppose we could say he staged a pretty good comeback by rising from the dead, but Jesus hardly fulfilled the job description given to him by God's people. Then again, maybe the problem was not with what Jesus did or didn't do, but with human imagination. To be fair, when we're faced with challenging circumstances, it can be difficult to see any way through, let alone imagine one that is entirely alien to our culture or our usual way of thinking. But Gabriel tells us nothing is impossible with God. So then, in what way is Jesus salvation? What kind of kingdom does he bring? What kind of king is he? We need to see things from God's perspective. God knew that the Romans weren't the main problem. They were a big problem. They were an often evil force in the world. But they weren't the issue that needed addressing. The suffering that the Romans had inflicted on God's people and on many others was a symptom, not the disease. The root cause was our very human failure to always stand by what we know to be right, to follow our conscience, and to live in the loving and relational way that God has intended for us. The underlying problem was that humanity had turned its back on God, refusing to live in a loving relationship with him and those he created. Luke alludes to this throughout our passage. He mirrors much of the language that is used in Genesis 12 to 18, where God calls Abraham and establishes his saving covenant with humanity, something that was only necessary because of the broken relationship caused by human sin, as we learn a few chapters earlier in Genesis 3. And in Luke 5, Jesus, talking about our sin, says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he said this whilst healing Jew and Gentile alike. It's a disease that we all suffer from, albeit in different ways, and at some times more subtly than at others. And yet, God was able to imagine a world where the consequences of our rejection of him could be overcome. Crucially, this wouldn't happen through the same means that humankind had used to bring pain and suffering. God wouldn't raise up a military force to overcome evil. Instead, he would transform the hearts of those he created through relationship. Luke is bursting with stories of how people's hearts are transformed because Jesus drew alongside them. They allowed him to enter into the complexity of their lives, pointing them to a life free 
of precariousness and instability, where fragility is transformed into strength and depression and suffering are traded for freedom and joy. In Luke 10, Jesus tells his followers that whenever people embrace him, the kingdom of God has come near. You see, this is the eternal kingdom that Gabriel speaks of. It's one that reaches fulfillment at the resurrection, but it starts now. Ultimately, the message that Gabriel brings is one of incarnation. It is the revelation that God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. Not just at Easter, but nine months before the very first Christmas. I said earlier that God's grand narrative is like a tapestry, weaved together by many threads. By entering into our world, God, in Jesus, invites our life stories, our single threads, to become entwined within this tapestry with his story of salvation. Gabriel teaches us that salvation is not only about our resurrection to eternal life, vitally important though that obviously is, but it's also about our journey there. The now matters. Our lives on this earth are hugely important to God. That is why he took on a human body and a human life. And that's why the kingdom starts here and now. It is by knowing that our lives matter this much that enables us to make sense of them. So let's return to our three surprises. Firstly, place. Like those living in Nazareth, we too live in a highly precarious and in some respects, relatively unstable political context. We don't exactly have the same issues as the Nazarenes, and we're definitely better off than those living in a number of places across the globe. But things are not as they ought to be. In the run-up to our general election, we see that our media is plagued by lies and half-truths, scheming and ego. And to make things worse, we are truly a divided nation. But God's invitation into his story allows us to transcend the current political narrative and see the bigger picture of his purposes for humanity. This doesn't mean that we altogether exit our country's political landscape, but it does mean that we have direction within it. We know how to overcome the relational breakdown that's become entrenched within our political system and our national debates. It is by allowing God to transform us so that we imitate the king of the eternal kingdom. We choose love over separation. That doesn't mean we can't have political convictions or act upon them, but it does mean that we need to embrace others as God has embraced us. 
we are asked to invite others into our life stories, just as God has invited us into his story. Although these things are rarely simple, if we strive to do it appropriately, we will see the way that God has created us to live more clearly. And it is by knowing how we are created to live and acting in accordance with that knowledge that we can make more sense of our world and our lives because they begin to fulfill their purpose. Secondly, who? Gabriel appeared to Mary, calling her favoured. But as we've seen, there was no obvious way to earn God's favour. Yet God invited Mary to take her place within his grand narrative. Gabriel's choice of language is important here. Mary is favoured. You see, the word translated as favour comes from the Greek word for grace. Mary's invitation into the greatest story that this world has ever known doesn't rely on her merits, although she undoubtedly had many. They rested on God's grace, favour that is unearned. And because there is nothing that can be done to earn grace, we can be confident that it's on offer to us all. Every one of us has the opportunity to enter into the overarching story of God's saving action in human history. We are all invited to discover the opportunity, to have the opportunity to make sense of our lives. Mary accepted the invitation and so changed the course of human history. We too have the chance to respond like Mary. Finally, how? We've been given the name of Jesus. God is salvation. He is our salvation from a broken and often fragmented world, one that has turned its back on the God of love and relationship. By coming in the form of a human, God showed us how we could live and why that kind of life is worth living, even in challenging circumstances. To finish then, I believe that two questions are before us. First, do we want to enter into God's story? Do we accept his invitation just as Mary did? And second, if so, where in our lives is God prompting us to be more like him? Where can we allow him to transform us and in doing so, embrace his kingdom, making more sense of the world and our place within it?